If you take your bulletin real fast just to show you something, if you would like to follow along with the message, we have something a little new. Uh, you have fill in the blanks here you can take in this blue insert, and on the back is plenty of lines that you can follow along and take notes, so I encourage you to use that uh, instead of drawing pictures of me uh, or anything else. Uh, how many of you remember the name Chuck Colson? There's a few here. Charles Colson is a Christian writer, uh, but back in the day, he used to be the counsel and the hatchet man for Richard Nixon. And if you remember your history, uh, the Watergate incident happened and Charles Colson was imprisoned. But the Lord did a work in his heart. He came to Christ, and out of that time came the vision for uh, oh, what he called prison fellowship and different ministries that came about. But in one of his books, he talked about an incident that happened at a church called Emmanuel Baptist Church of Newton, Massachusetts. In this story, as he was writing, it was called his book, The Body, and he entitled this chapter, Extending the Right Fist of Fellowship. Does that give you a picture of what's going on? Well, the pastor and the head deacon were down at the front of the uh, sanctuary having a discussion, and it got kind of lively, and the two started to swing at each other. And about a minute and 20 seconds into the fight, the head deacon landed a right hook that dropped the pastor on the ground. Mayhem ensued when the whole church body came forward and pushing and shoving and swinging started to happen. And one of the little old church ladies threw a hymnal and it went flying by and landed into the baptistry. And somebody picked up the live flowers and chucked them at the deacon's head and water went over and baptized the whole congregation. But Colson goes on to talk about this struggle within this church. We come to a passage today where James is talking to us about issues within the church, fights within the church. Now, we'd like to, anybody seen a fist fight at church? I haven't. It hasn't gone that far for me. Now, uh, Wendy and I, over the past, you know, 26 years of ministry, I've seen some pretty ugly things. I've seen anger. I, I've seen church division. I, and I think we've, in some ways, been hurt by church in some ways, and I think all of us can attest to that. I don't know if I've ever seen it go to that length of an actual fist fight breaking out, but it does happen, unfortunately. We, we, we would like to think that it doesn't. But today... As we go on into this passage that we're going to talk about things in the church, as we've been going through James over the last few weeks, what we've really been talking about is the integration of faith in life. That you and I would be moved by God, moved by the Holy Spirit to change our heart, our minds, and our thoughts. That our actions would reflect the word of God. the way we are to live in the here and now, being in the world but not of the world. 
And what James has been talking about, worldliness and the things of the world and how it was affecting the church and how it was affecting the believers of his time. So as we go into chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, talking the differences between worldliness and, and how we, worldliness and godliness, and how we are to combat worldliness in our lives and in the church, we're talking about real change, authentic change in our hearts. The key point of this today is talking about how we can keep worldliness out of our lives and out of the church. Authentic Christianity calls for submission and resistance. That's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? That we, that James is going to be talking about. But let's dig in. Open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What, quarrel, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James begins this discussion with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And if you were asked that question this morning, if maybe James was here and he was asking us this, how would you answer that, answer that question? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Would anybody say it's his fault over here? Would we point the figure somewhere else? Would, would we make some kind of excuse for our behavior or, or what was happening at the time? James does something unique that he answers his question with a question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, that you desire and do not have, so you murder? Okay, we, we've talked about this morning that, you know, can we even imagine that a fist fight would break out in church, right? James is talking about murder. Can we imagine where something would happen, that that kind of thing would take place? Why would he bring this up? What are, you know, why is he going here? It's kind of interesting. I, you know, I've never seen a fist fight. I've never seen a murder. Anybody else? I mean, think of the people and think of the, the makeup of the church at the time, maybe the past lives that were lived. I mean, think of the apostles when you had Paul who persecuted the church even to the point where Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. Think about a, a little-known apostle known as Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot was? A zealot was a Jew who was a part of a radical Jewish element that was all against Roman rule. That group was so brutal, so over the top, that they were charged with different assassinations within Roman rule and taking out Roman leaders. Could it be that... James is also talking about this internal struggle that all in you, 
that you and I have. And if you're following along in your notes, realizing the war within you. Within each person, there is a war going on. A war between the sinful nature and the spiritual nature, the nature of God. It is creating turmoil within us. It's causing conflict within us. So much so that it can go external. That what is going on in here comes out. And I know this isn't anyone here, but have you ever seen the ugly come out in someone else? I am being a little facetious here, but there's something going on. And in chapter 3, if you go back and we see the connections of chapter 3 and chapter 4, James talks in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. See, where you have people, you will have issues, and you have the potential for interpersonal relationship issues. And we are not, and the church is not void of this, because where the church is, you have people. And so we have to realize that there is an internal war that goes on within us, this fight between the worldliness and the spiritual. And as we look at this, as we, we dive in a little deeper, there's something going on in here. And that maybe James is trying to make his point like Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when it says, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard it said, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Does anybody else want to say ouch with me? Where the moral code is ratcheted up by Jesus that saying, you know, murder is one thing, but even if you harbor anger in your heart, it's equal. I mean, that's kind of a shocker for us to consider. And if you consider for a moment what worldly wisdom is versus godly wisdom, worldly wisdom is a wisdom that lacks a moral element. Now, there are people out in the world today who are not believers in Jesus Christ, but yet they live a very moral life. They live by a moral code. And so there is a worldly wisdom that is, for lack of a better term, good. I mean, it's moral, but... What separates godly wisdom from worldly wisdom is a spiritual element on top of that moral element. That we see things God's way. And these words that he put down, we hide them in our heart, we obey them, and we strive to fill them out. If we dig in a little deeper, external conflicts then, <coughs> if we go by James's recipe here, External conflicts are the results of selfish internal passion. 
unmet desires. I want something. It doesn't get met. So I'm going to throw my hissy fit. I'm going to throw a hymnal at somebody's head. Unfulfilled desire, James says. And then he adds something in that's, that's a little concerning. He talks about an inept prayer life. You ask, and you do not have because of this. There's an inept prayer life going on. Selfish prayer asked with wrong motives. And, and we're really going to dig into this in a little bit. But when you look at the Bible, when you look at our world, and we look at things over time, things haven't changed very much. Even today, we still see senseless murder, senseless crime. Oh, I want a TV, so I'm going to go into the local Walmart, and I'm just going to take it off the shelf and walk out the door. Have we not seen that on the news? We see all this senseless sin. Why? Because people want something, needs are unmet, so they take it. The world tries to make excuses for it. Well, maybe that's just how they were raised. There, this, maybe this problem is related to this. They try to make these excuses, which James says is really an internal soul issue. It's an internal heart issue. I'm trying to remember the name. I believe it goes back as far as a, a guy named Alan Keyes who ran for president a number of years ago. And he was talking about crime issues and he was talking about things, issues within the city. And he said, we don't have a gun problem. We have a moral problem. So many of these things that we see that people are trying to defend are simply a sinful nature heart issue, an internal issue, and we don't like to talk about that today. But in this capacity, in our sinful nature, we wrestle. And, and, and remember who James is writing to. Who is James writing to? Is he writing to sinners out in the world? No, he's writing to professing Christians where these issues are starting to raise their ugly head. We got to realize the war within. If you turn to Romans chapter 7 with me quick, Paul talks about the internal issue that he had. For what I am doing, I do not understand what I'm doing. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in me. See, it goes against the the worldly code that, say, that says people are basically good. But that's not true when you look at Scripture. Anybody else, you know, the words that Paul uses are kind of like this, this little path that kind of loses you a little bit. But do you totally understand what he's getting at? The very good I don't want to do, that's not what I do. There's an internal struggle and an internal war. 
that is going on. And Paul, exasperated at the end, goes, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I mean, it's a genuine question, right? What can set us free from this war that is within us? And he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus sets us free from this internal issue, this internal power, the, the sin, the power that sin has over us is broken. And we have the, the ability to say no. Folks, to apply this, you got to understand your sinful nature. You've got to understand that it is formidable. You've got to understand that it pulls at your very soul. But the answer is Jesus Christ. The spiritual that comes in and that breaks that power, the Holy Spirit comes in to clean house and helps us to understand our sinful nature. But the only way that you can deal with this nature is spiritually. You've got to deal with it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this is the only hope that we have through Jesus Christ, our salvation. Number two is choosing the right ally. If we go to verses three through six, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you think that James is stepping on the toes of any of his readers? Do we feel that pressure on our toes? Because it's directed right at us in our heart, in the issues that we have as people. And as usual, James is covering uh, multiple topics here, but he, he jumps back in to the wrong prayer thing, the, the inept prayer thing. That not only are you praying wrongly, but you're praying with wrong motives. You're asking for something because there's something you want. It's kind of like treating God like a vending machine. That I'm going to go up to God, I'm going to put my 25-cent prayer in, and I expect him to deliver. But is that how prayer really works? And I'll say no. Prayer directed by wrong motives will not yield godly results. It just won't. What does prayer with right motives look like? If our heart is right and our prayers are right, what does that look like? I mean, he describes what wrong prayer looks like. He, he, he describes what selfish prayer looks like. But if we go out through the scripture, James 1.6, James says this, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Then the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, prayer is an exercise of our faith. That we are going to ask God to do something that is beyond our control. 
beyond our ability. And so we're going to stand in faith and believe that God can do this. So right prayer includes faith. Secondly, John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Asking you will receive that your joy may be full. See, we are told to pray in Jesus' name for things. To ask in Jesus' name for things. Lord Jesus, would you grant this? Lord Jesus, would you do this? 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, are we asking God, let your will be done? Are we saying, hey, Lord, may this not be my will, but yours? Are we submitting to it? Are we asking, God, I need this thing, but I just give it to you. Show me. Let your will be done. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. See, unconfessed sin hinders your prayer life. If, if we go on and continue in our life and we continue in sin, can we expect to hear from God? Because there's a chasm between us. Let's look at for a minute as James is teaching us of us and look at the prophetic signs of the times where Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, as you and I look at this verse, are we there? Are we in the last days? Do we see these things happening within our world? Do I need to read them again? I don't think so. Because we see this in our time, we see this in our world, and unfortunately, maybe in our experience, we've seen these things rise up in the church. How many times, and I think it was James that said, this ought not to be, correct? We find ourselves in a corrupt world system that is set in total opposition to the things of God. John also talks about this in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from this world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
see, it comes down to a choice. Who is our ally? Is it God or is it the world around us? And if we choose, we're not standing at a buffet and saying, well, I like this and I like this and I like this. God is saying, here's my side. Here's my word. The choice is yours. And you can't pick and choose within the word of God. What did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. You cannot serve money and God. You've got to choose one. See, in our world today, we want the best of both worlds. We want the smorgasbord where we want it the way we want it. But reality in life is not that way. And if we choose worldliness and if we choose the things of the world, we put ourselves in opposition against God. Now, here's the thing about the Bible. I read the end, and guess who wins? Which side do you want to be on is the question of that. And so it calls us to leave the worldly things behind and choose the way of God and to walk the way of God. Now, James says something that is kind of interesting when he talks about the jealousy of the Holy Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit within him. And is it concerning to you at all that the Holy Spirit has the ability to become jealous. It's not really a characteristic that we like to talk about or that we would consider a godly characteristic. There's certain things in our English language when we say like anger and jealousy. Do those have anything to do with God? But when we look at them from a biblical perspective, it is a a side of God's character. Deuteronomy 6.15 says this, For the Lord your God is in your midst, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you off the face of the earth. So we don't like to talk about the anger of God. We don't like to talk about the jealousy of God. And really, these are stunning verses. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. How does that equate? See, human jealousy is often tainted by sin and can can quickly morph in destructive anger and envy because God, though, is without sin. God's jealousy, what is it in response to? His jealousy is in response to our idolatry. In what we put in the place of him. That God's jealousy is righteous and holy. We call it righteous indignation, right? God's anger. God's, see, God has a desire to remove that sin of idolatry from our life. Why? Because it is for our good. And the Holy Spirit does not want to see you harmed by your sin. 
or your idolatry. That Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put that all away, what's happening in the church. Stop doing it. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Can we say that God and the Holy Spirit are both grieved when disruption happens within his church? When these worldly practices enter in the church, God doesn't like it. He hates it, you could say. That he's jealous because he doesn't want that for you. He wants that out of your life. But here's where the mighty grace of God comes in, and God's grace comes in in a mighty way, that when we come before him with humility, with this broken heart that says, I am truly sorry. I am sorry for what I've done, that our hearts break because of our sin. Because really, in this day and age, do we care that much about sin? Have we lost that regard for sin that, boy, that's evil? Or do we let it pass? We need to come to grips with the gravity and the weight of our sin and come humbly before God. And guess what? The grace of God will cover us. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. God desires the newness of life to live and breathe within us and around us that others would say, see it that as we apply it, that we would remain faithful to the Lord. Because doesn't that strike you that friendship with the word world is considered adultery with God? That we are cheating on God. It, it's an incredible thought. But we need to remain faithful to the Lord, that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit, that we go humbly before God and confess our heart to him. And the last thing is choosing the right path. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does it mean for you and I to submit and resist? Submit to what? Resist to what? In the, human, in the human sense, what does it mean to submit? Well, the definition is to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. But to fight the worldliness of this age calls for a spiritual submission of us that we would submit to the Lord, that we would submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, 
And, and so what does that look like? Biblical submission looks like that we would obey the word of God, that we would be obedient to what he has said in his word. It means also to bring under control that in ourselves, we have trouble controlling ourselves, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to submit to God and to overcome these things in our lives. And this means that every day when you and I wake up, and we go about another day that you and I would willfully choose to follow the Lord, that we would take up our cross that day and follow him. But the reality is that our spirit, sinful nature is still there, and there will be pressures from outside, not only within, but from outside of the world to conform to what the world says is normal. When we choose to follow Christ, it means that we are going upstream in a world that is heading downstream. And there will be constant pressure to conform. But submitting to the Holy Spirit will give us the power to endure that. It also is an exercise of our faith Romans 1.17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our faith from beginning to end. The resistance come in, comes in resisting the devil, resisting the world and its system. And not to give our enemy too much credit, and also not to underestimate him too much. He is powerful. He is control, in control of this world and its system. John 10.10 describes him is that his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. His, what his focus is to steal as many from God as he can take. But here is the difference. He's not all-powerful. He is limited in his power. He is on the clock that his days are numbered and his destruction is sure, that he was soundly and permanently defeated at the cross, that it was Jesus who stepped on the head of the serpent. And so, so here it is. But you and I are to resist the evil in this world. We're to resist the temptation. Do you know what resist means? It means to be hostile towards that we would hate sin as much as God does. That we would oppose it. That we would rebel against it. That we would set our lives against it. Paul talks about how you and I are to take up the armor of God to resist the enemy. Do you remember this scripture? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having all that to stand firm, stand for, firm there, fastening on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
We resist by submitting to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. We resist by obeying his word. We resist by practicing righteousness, that it righteousness protects our heart, that we would share the gospel which gives our feet and lives stability, that our faith then is protect, it protects us like a shield, and our salvation protects our minds and gives us a peace of God like no other. The sword of the Spirit, our only defense, only offensive weapon, protects us, it implants the word within us, and it sets us free from the schemes of the enemy. It teaches us the truth of God. The last thing mentioned there in Ephesians that you and I are to be praying. See, that's what genuine and authentic prayer looks like, that we're praying for each other that we're asking for the will of God. And in verse 8, James makes it pretty clear. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You want to resist? Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, confess your sin, purify your heart. Be wretched, be genuine, be truly sorry. Go before your God with humility and he will lift you up. It calls us and this is how we apply it, to submit, resist, draw near, repent, humble yourself. Now, you know, if we compare the first church with what the second church should look like, which church do you want to be in? There's no comparison that we want to be in number two. And part of our duty is to foster that, to foster that love, to foster that forgiveness, to handle things in Matthew 18 as we see issues. I want to show you a picture before we leave today. There's, I don't know if you can see it real well, maybe the lights are too bright, but this is a chapel, and there's lots of people in it that are filling it. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening in our world, and I, I, I you know, at times I read things, and I see the, the state of the church as a whole, I read the other day that the, the medium age, age of a pastor in the U.S. today is 57 years old. And the question of what happens when these guys retire, who's going to take their place? I don't know if you've heard in the news, though, what's been happening in Wilmore, Kentucky. Anybody else see it? What's happening over at Asbury University? This is Asbury, and this isn't a photo that I pulled off the web. This is a photo from Wendy's sister, Jody, who heard what was going on, and her and a friend flew down there. Ten days ago, chapel started, and the kids didn't want to leave. The Holy Spirit moved, and their worship has now been going on for ten days. 100 worship leaders have been put in a rotation to make sure that worship still happens. This revival, what they're calling the Asbury Revival, is focused on prayer, worship, the reading of God's scripture, and testimonials of the people. That's all it's comprising of. They've had notable 
big church pastors call and say, we'd like to come. And you know what the university said? No, thank you. You're welcome to come and sit, but we don't need a word. We want to protect what's going on here. And so did you know also, this movement has also moved to a university called Sanford, Sanford University. It's also helping, happening in Cedarville University in Ohio, Lee University in Tennessee. The Holy Spirit is moving. I worried about this next generation. Anybody else there? But God has this next generation, and he is moving in them in a powerful way. So my question is, what about us, church? Are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts that we would align with him? That something like that could happen here? You know, one of the good things that I do hear happening in the, in the American church is there's something happening in churches our size. That people are coming back. That they are changing their lives. And may it be said of us in Fairfield that there's something different. There's something going on that with this people. Folks, we're getting into the word of God. May it change our lives. May the Holy Spirit move in us and move us toward him. Do you want the Holy Spirit to work in your heart? Do you want the Lord to work in your heart and do a movement in you? I do. Would you join me and that our church would resemble God and what he wants to do in this world and that we would protect our church from the world? When I grew up, my sisters and I have often talked about the 14 acres that we grew up in. It seemed like there was a bubble that my mom and dad did a good job of keeping the world out. They raised us with a philosophy that you, you love your neighbor, you're kind and you help your neighbor, and you go to church. And that kind of philosophy instilled in me that I'm standing here before you, that I got saved at my church. Folks, may we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to the work that he wants to do in us individually and corporately as a body. Charlie and Jill, will you come and lead us? Father, we come before you.